Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here with my favorite co-host, <laughs> Ellen McGirt. Ellen. And not just because I'm your only co-host. That's that right, Alan? <laughs> you, because you are the best co-host. Oh, this is the best part of my day. <laughs> well, and we also had a great interview this week we with Alexander Hardy, who is the mm-hmm. CEO of Genentech, one of the oldest biotech firms. It was founded in 1976 in San Francisco, then was acquired by Roche in 2009. And I think a lot of people at the time were worried about what a big company takeover would do to the entrepreneurial spirit of the company. But I think what we found is that entrepreneurial spirit is alive and well. It absolutely is. And people seem to be happy there. Talent did not walk out the door. They've been on our best companies to work for list the past 22 years without interruption. So one of the reasons I know that we were both interested in speaking with him is because of their commitment to diversity. One of the first things he did when he became CEO in 2019 was establish a chief diversity officer who reports directly to him. But even more important now, what we've learned with the health inequities during COVID, clinical trials is so important. Alan, I just stepped entirely on Yeah, that's all right. That's all right. I, I, I thoroughly <laughs> agree with you. It is very important. And let's just dive right in. So, Alexander, the pandemic has completely changed your industry, the way I see it. Uh, I would argue that it was known for its fierce competitiveness, protection of intellectual property, with some bad outliers, price gouging. Uh, And suddenly when the pandemic hit, there was this explosion of cooperation and sharing and everybody working together to (laughs) defeat the pandemic. And I wonder how that looked to you uh, from uh, Genentech's point of view. Did you see as big a change as I did? Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the pandemic, you know, sent a lot of challenges our way, but there were also these really inspiring moments as you saw the industry coming together. You know, in our own case, for example, we have our own drugs. We have about eight drugs in various stages of development as therapeutics for COVID. But we decided to give over a, a large proportion of our manufacturing at our largest biologic site to manufacturing one of our biggest competitors, uh, monoclonal antibodies. And uh, this is a competitor who we compete very, very uh, fiercely against. You, you in... still won't mention them by name. We haven't, made, we haven't gotten over that hurdle yet. Do you want to mention That's, them by name? That, no, I, I will mention them by name. It's, uh, it's uh, Regeneron. And uh, we have a partnership on their monoclonal antibody cocktail. It's manufacturing, um, which, which allows us to actually, we're, we're contributing about 55% of the global total uh, of the drug that they're looking to supply the world. And we're also distributing that drug uh, globally outside the United States. So it's a, it's a really a deep partnership. So to, to the rest of us, that looks like a pretty good thing, that kind of yeah. collaboration and cooperation to solve problems. What do you do to keep it up when the pandemic passes? Well, I think this is going to be the key. You know, what, What's going to happen after the pandemic in so many different areas? But when it comes to private-private partnerships, I think you know the, the, the relationships we've forged and the way we've approached these deals, normally you go through you know tremendously long negotiation processes, and and the pandemic obviously you know nobody could wait around for that. So uh, we we basically had very very broad deals with with not every uh, eventuality was was mapped out like they normally are. 
uh, and we moved ahead. And actually, we started uh, working together even before the deal was fully inked. Because again, time was time was of the essence. Genentech uh, obviously wasn't in the lead in fighting the pandemic, but you are in the lead of fighting a couple of other of the biggest healthcare scourges that we face as a society, particularly advanced societies. One is cancer. The other is neurological diseases like Alzheimer's in particular, ALS, others. Can you tell us how the lessons you've learned during the pandemic could help us conquer those very big problems that we face. So this has required us to to be really innovative, fast and, and flexible. Innovative was always a characteristic that I would say uh, was a characteristic of Genentech and our industry. Uh, fast and flexible, not so much. Again, that focus on, in many cases, perfection mm-hmm. meant that, that sometimes we moved slower than uh, we really needed. So during the pandemic, because we've had to, we've really pushed down decision-making down the organization. So things don't have to work up to a very, very senior level. People are empowered to make decisions themselves. And and we've challenged those those teams, those empowered teams have challenged themselves to do things differently. And the speed of change has been really remarkable. So for example, it would normally take us from FDA approval to initiating a study, in some cases, four to five months, during the pandemic, we did that in three weeks. Uh, oh, a tech yeah. transfer between manufacturing plants. We we shifted production around. We've done that in three weeks, and that has taken us eight to twelve months uh, before the pandemic to move one of these biologics lines uh, from one site to another. So th- there's so many opportunities here for us to to do these things differently. Some of them come from the pandemic. Some of them, I think. Uh, the results of technological trends and, and scientific understanding, which is starting to break as we speak. One of the things that clearly came up during the pandemic were the inequities in our health system. And it's painful blessing that it's this is now front and center and very serious people are talking about it in a new way. You wrote a, a really important piece on how that looked from your point of view. Um, can you talk us a little bit about what it, what that was and and what you decided to do about it? Yes, Ellen. I mean, we were we were already focused on the topic of equity and particularly health inequity, because that's obviously directly in our lane. Um, so we were watching for this. I mean, we already were aware of and working to address uh, these topics, but we were looking for it in the pandemic. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, we saw it very, very early on. Uh, we were looking actually at uh, at anonymized electronic medical record data, which we get huge data sets. Uh, and we could see really that just before it sort of broke publicly, we could see that the rates of uh, hospitalization and death uh, in underserved populations uh, were, was greater than the overall population. Uh, and that spurred us uh, into action. We, you know, we realized that you know, clearly our own development efforts needed to make sure that we were recruiting into our studies uh, these underserved populations because they were suffering in, in a really uh, unimaginable level. As we all know, it's not just the the virus that they're facing, right. but health equity issues that that spanned the whole continuum from diagnosis to to treatment, uh, as well as our underlying conditions. So this has been one of the big themes for us from the pandemic, and and one that you know, whilst partnerships will have to see, I am absolutely convinced that the focus on health equity 
is something that's going to continue beyond the pandemic, and it has to. We have a, a really significant responsibility as an industry society to never let these sorts of issues uh, impact these populations as they've done now. All right, so let's pause there for a minute. The issue of health equity, and especially this focus on boosting diversity in clinical trials, is clearly top of mind for Genentech. But we thought it would be helpful to get a little bit more insight into the problem. So I connected with Diana Zuckerman. She did her postdoctoral work in epidemiology and public health at Yale Medical School. And now she's the president of the National Center for Health Research, a nonprofit think tank. Dr. Zuckerman, welcome to Leadership Next. Thanks so much. You sent me to prepare for this a chapter in your book on clinical trials. This was 2009, and you warned me before we began that things haven't gotten much better. Can we start by just laying out the scope of the problem we're facing here? Sure. So it's not that people don't know that diversity in clinical trials is really important. In fact, a a law was passed decades ago to require that federally funded research have diverse populations. The The problem is that the law doesn't apply to every federal agency. It does not apply to the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. And yet that's the agency that makes decisions about whether drugs and devices and all these different treatments and screening tools are approved, you know, whether they're safe whether they're effective and whether they're accurate. And so you would really want those to be tested on all people. Right. But that's right. They aren't. The example that always haunts me, I I do cover race and culture here at Fortune, is the experience of black women breast cancer patients. You know, it, and it you know, the original idea was that it was a lack of testing, lack of access led to terrible outcomes, but that turned out not to be the case. Right? That's correct. And it, I mean, for many years, it was conventional wisdom that black women were less likely to develop breast cancer, but more likely to die from it. And so there was this assumption that it was an issue of access to care, the quality of care. But it ends up that if you looked at the research, you saw that the original major studies of breast cancer treatment were done on white women. And Mm -hmm. so they did not have women with, for example, triple negative breast cancer, which is a type of breast cancer that African-American women are more likely to have than white women. And because they weren't studied, they didn't realize that the treatments that they were studying would not work on those types of cancer. Yeah, that's the tragedy just just compounds. We just spoke for this episode with the CEO of Genentech, who says that tackling this very specific issue um, in terms of health equity in clinical trials is a big priority for them. Are you hearing this more and more? And and are you hopeful? Are you optimistic this will work? Okay, listeners, she's smiling. I don't know what this means. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm a little cynical here. Okay. I mean, these companies have been saying that for a long time. And they always, I mean, at least in recent years, they say the right thing. But they then proceed to say, well, you know, we're trying to recruit Mm -hmm. black patients, but black patients don't want to participate in clinical trials. And We know there's some truth to that, that there's a certain lack of confidence and trust Mm -hmm. in the medical system. Mm -hmm. But it's at least as true, if not more true, 
that companies haven't done a particularly good job of recruiting them. They haven't included very many researchers of color who might be more trusted and also might be treating more black patients, for example. They aren't providing incentives like, let's say, free childcare or public transportation stipends or something to help people participate in clinical trials. You know, it's one thing if you're an affluent person with your own car and the place doing the trials is conveniently located to where you live. It's another matter if you've got a young child and you don't have childcare and or you don't have a car or public transportation is extremely inconvenient or expensive. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why people find it inconvenient and sometimes impossibly inconvenient to participate in clinical trials. Well, and what I'm hearing by doing that is acknowledging what people are up against and how they live and where they live. And just that alone would drive trust and confidence that people have a sense that um, a medical establishment knows who they are and cares about how they're doing. That's right. I'm sure a lot of people feel like, well, this is not my doctor. And this is not my medical center. This is not where I go for treatment. I don't know people there. I don't know if I can trust people there. And I do think that in general, that's become better understood. I do think that pharmaceutical and biological treatment companies are looking more at who's doing the studies and don't they need to include people who normally serve people of color, but they're still not good at the other part of the incentive. And let me say that the government is also to blame because Congress has pushed the FDA for years now to be better at Mm -hmm. more diversity in clinical trials. The excuse has been that, well, the FDA doesn't pay for the clinical trials. So the FDA's excuse has been, we can't tell them what to do. But That's not really true because the FDA makes the decision whether to approve the product or not. Mm. And if the FDA said, well, this is a poor quality study because there's only white men in it, you know, or young white men or young white people in it, you know, whoever, (laughs) if they said that, I promise you, uh, you know, if they said we can't approve this product because the quality of the research is not good enough. Yeah. Or if they said, look, we're going to approve this product, but only for white men or white men under 50 or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. No company wants that. You know, they want their product to be used by the maximum number of patients. So that would be a huge incentive. All right. Now, I should point out that all of Diana's comments were directed at the medical industry generally, not specifically at Genentech. But as she points out, diversifying clinical trials isn't an easy thing to do. And we're going to hear more from Alexander Hardy on that point right after this. Hi. 
I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is CEO of Deloitte U.S. and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Joe, thanks for being with us, and thanks for your support of our second season. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. Over the last decade, we've seen more and more CEOs speaking out on social issues, issues like gun control, gay rights, racial justice. But that really reached a peak in 2020 with the outpouring of business commentary on the George Floyd killing, and then again in January when the mob stormed the Capitol. What's going on here? Well, the last number of months have clearly been a test, and I hope there's a general consensus that business has passed. You know, there have been so many moments over the past number of months where we in business have demonstrated not just the willingness, but the imperative to speak out for what we believe in, to call out improper conduct and help drive change in society. Our people expect that. Our clients expect that. I think this is at the core of what we talk about in terms of stakeholder capitalism. I also think, Alan, that there's a growing realization that if we as business leaders don't speak out, who will? Business is arguably the last trusted institution in society. Trust in business has actually gone up during the pandemic. And as a result, we have a responsibility to help lead our people through these really difficult events. You have a responsibility, Joe, but you also have a risk. How do you balance that? I have consistently seen that in making that calculation, business leaders have come to the conclusion that the risk of not speaking out is greater than the risk of speaking up. Will you get 100% alignment around the message? No, but the risk to the goodwill of your people, to the allegiance of your customers is actually greater if you're unwilling to share what you as an organization stand for. And that is more important than the potential that some percentage will not be aligned with the message that you're sharing. Joe, thank you. And we're back with the CEO of Genentech, Alexander Hardy. I don't think people quite understand how often and how profoundly medically disenfranchised patients are left out of the development stage and the clinical trial stage. And I wanted to flag how quickly, at least in other industries, things like equity inclusion are sidelined when people need to move faster. You know, so you, you rely on some of your traditional ways of doing things and the traditional people you know, and you just go, 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 go. How are, can you give us some details on what health, health equity looks like for you and how you're ensuring that those values and ideals are being preserved as you are saving the world? Yes. Well, I can, I can give you some very good examples, Alan, and I Thank agree you. with you. I mean, it's, it's, you often hear, okay, yes, this is important, but my clinical study is in this disease area, which is a devastating disease area. Right. And, and I want to move as quickly as possible. And you're asking me to do one additional thing, right. uh, which is a very, very challenging thing because we, as we talked about those systemic issues uh, and yeah. underlying those systemic issues are topics like trust, right. which are hard to, uh, to negotiate and, and make progress on. But again, during this pandemic, you know, we've seen progress and I can give you encouraging signs that this is already being translated beyond the pandemic to other disease areas, the development of important drugs in, in Alzheimer's and in, in neuroscience. So, you know, I'll, I'll give, just give you the example that we saw this signal of the disproportionate impact on underserved populations. So we actually very, very quickly created a phase three study of one of the medicines we were studying uh, in COVID. Uh, it was our, our most advanced program, but we saw 
this issue of equity. And uh, we managed to recruit around 85% of the patients in that study were from underserved populations, Latinx, African-American, actually Native American. Yeah. The largest yeah. recruiting site of that entire study was actually on the border of the Navajo Nation, which is really fantastic because Native Americans have, have been traditionally a population that have been significantly underrepresented in studies. And this was the fastest ever designed, executed study wow. in the history of Genentech in our 45-year wow. history. And we've taken that knowledge now, and, and we're in the midst of recruiting uh, the first study in underserved populations, randomized study in multiple sclerosis. So wow. particularly targeting the African-American and Latinx population, where there is a significant issue and challenges with multiple sclerosis. And that study, the CHIME study, uh, is taking those learnings and applying them to now this other disease area. And we're doing the same thing in Alzheimer's. So I'm really convinced that our, our teams have taken the learnings and are applying them. In terms of developing trust, what have you learned about reaching out to underserved populations and, and what would people in, in the whole health ecosystem benefit from learning, which includes you know, government and actual healthcare delivery systems, about restoring this trust? Yes. I mean, it, you know, this is, this is going to take time, yeah. but it's one of those things where we have to work uh, systemically at it. And it's certainly not something that just Genentech or the industry we're not going to be able to do it on our own and we're not going to be effective doing it on our own. So this is another area where, you know, partnership is a, a real opportunity, public-private partnerships. Um, I think it's it gets down to how we do these studies, where we place them, diversifying our investigator base. So the investigators come from these communities, which clearly, you know, you trust people more naturally who, who come from your communities. Right. So we've got to work all the way back to all these different elements. This is not going to happen overnight, but it's clearly fundamental to make progress in this area. So, and now to the question, I think we've gotten a taste in the last 20 minutes of why this is true. You have spent 22 years on Fortune's 100 best companies to work for list. You are clearly winning the war for talent. How do you do it? Well, we spend a lot of time talking about how important it is to continue to attract the very, very best minds. I mean, that that's fundamentally all this, all this amazing progress for patients comes from attracting the very, very best people, creating an environment where they can do their very best work. So that is a absolute focus of the executive team at, at Genentech. And you, you've got to remain true to your values. And ours is a deep focus on science, a focus on patients, and always putting the patients in the center of everything we do, and then creating a culture that attracts and makes sure that people can do their very best work. So I want to stick on that culture point because, you know, you, you see a lot in the press and elsewhere people are talking about the difference between being a fast-moving Silicon Valley startup and a slow-moving legacy company. And uh, uh, Genentech, of course, was bought 10 years ago by Roche, a big Swiss giant. How has it changed the culture? Does it make you slower? Does it affect you? Does it keep you from solving problems as effectively? How do you see that buzz about the startup culture versus the legacy culture? You know, the, the reality is, you know, we're a pure play innovation company. So we're focused on innovation. We look at our competitors as who are the other people producing the most innovation in medicine? And, you know, increasingly that is small, medium-sized companies that are able to move fast, that can take an idea 
and turn it into action very, very quickly. So we have to be able to operate at their speed. And, and so this, this has been a focus of ours. And it was prior to the, the integration with Roche, we were already a large company. But what has changed is biotech is really, I mean, it, it, it's exploding all around us. There's huge amounts of capital moving into it all around us. And it's also the war on talent in so much that, uh, you know, people can move companies. They don't even need to change the exit that they get off on the freeway, <laughs> but they can, they can just park at yeah. a different building and work for a startup. So we are completely focused on, on making sure that our experience and, and a people, somebody's ability to make a difference in their scientific area or whatever their job is, they can work as fast at Genentech and they have all the resources of a large company. So how can you get the, the speed of a small company with all the scale advantages that uh, a large company has? So elephants can dance is the answer to the question. <laughs> I, I think we're dancing. I think we're doing a two-step right now. <laughs> really quick, you I know you've had experience inside Genentech and Roche and, and you became CEO in 2019 and the world changed dramatically not too long after. I'm curious looking back what your big hopes, dreams, and visions were for your tenure as CEO and how they have changed or how they may have stayed the same? Oh, that's a great question, Ellen. You know, things have been so fast and furious that the, the opportunities to reflect have been a little bit less than I would normally like. But, yeah. uh, you know, I would, I, I've been a longstanding Genentech employee and coming back uh, into the CEO role at Genentech from having my last two roles were in Roche, uh, in global roles was just so meaningful. I mean, I have uh, so so much pride in this company and uh, wanted to to really make advances in terms of making it faster and more agile. And, you know, I was really excited about the possibilities of that. How can we develop drugs much, much quicker than we've ever been able to do? How can we ensure that decision-making is, is faster? How can we do a better job interacting with our customers? The, the industry has the same model that, that it's used for the last 30 to 40 years. How can we change that to create a better experience for customers, uh, HCPs and uh, healthcare professionals and, and patients? So I was looking forward to those aspects uh, and, and keeping Genentech on the, the forefront of innovation and attracting the very best talent. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to make progress on this, this topic of, of diversity and inclusion. And actually, one of the first things I did was to, to set up uh, an office of the chief diversity officer reporting to me, uh, because I, I, I really saw this as being a, a really important issue. And this now being the time where we could take our focus on gender parity and broaden it out and, and start to make an impact on health equity. The pandemic came in and it has only shone a, a brighter light on those topics. And uh, that was just luck on on my behalf, a terrible sort of luck, but mm -hmm. luck that that was a topic that was already really in focus and, and one that we were already on our way to to uh, trying to make significant progress on. Well, kudos to you, Alexander Hardy. Thank you for a great conversation. Thanks for taking time to be with Ellen and, and me on Leadership Next. And Ellen, thank you, as always, for being an amazing co-host. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thanks thank for you. having me on. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. 
Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 